0: It's January 2018, and the head of the British Army at the time is giving a speech.
1: I think it is the rising threat from states that is of most immediate concern. The rules-based international architecture that has assured our stability and prosperity since 1945 is, I suggest, threatened.
0: Unusually, General Sir Nick Carter dedicates nearly the whole speech to one country.
1: Russia, the most complex and capable security challenge we have faced since the Cold War. Russia, I think, could initiate hostilities sooner than we expect, thermobaric warheads. It will start with something we don't expect. We should not take what we've seen so far as a template for the future.
0: Did the military see this coming?
1: I believe our ability to preempt or respond to these threats will be eroded if we don't match up to them now. They represent a clear and present danger. They are now on Europe's doorstep. We cannot afford to sit back.
0: How does this war end? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, former Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir Nick Carter on Putin's war in Ukraine. For General Sinek Carter, the signs of escalating tensions with Russia first became clear one day in Germany,
1: in 2007, when President Putin was speaking. He made a speech at the Munich Security Conference. One state, the United States, has overstepped its national borders in every way – economics, politics, humanitarian – all imposed by one state. Who would like that? He very much denounced the NATO enlargement that was occurring at the time as something that, you know, he couldn't really accept. It leads to a situation where nobody feels secure. And of course, it was related in a sense to what he was saying at the time about um, the collapse of the Soviet Union being the greatest geostrategic catastrophe of the 20th century. Mm. And he clearly Disapproved of the way in which America at the time was, of course, preempt in so many ways. And anyway, he gave quite an iconoclastic speech, which probably could have been a warning, uh, I think, for all of us about what he thought about NATO and the West. And that was followed the following year with him invading Georgia. Overseas, a fierce battle broke out today on the fringe of the former Soviet Union. Tonight, Secretary of State Rice is calling on Russia to end its assault on the Republic of Georgia. President Bush has told Russian leaders that military action against Georgia is unacceptable. Vice President Cheney said, Russia's invasion must not go unanswered. An operation which didn't go very well for him and which led to a significant modernization program of his armed forces. And then, of course, we saw what happened in 2014 with this invasion of Crimea. A kind of battle cry from Russian President Vladimir Putin, a scathing message for the United States about Ukraine. We have already achieved much, he
0: said. There is even more to do. We shall prevail because we are united. Glory to Russia.
1: And we began to see then... I think, quite nuanced tactics in the way he did things. You know, He'd always been an exponent of what I would call political warfare. But what you saw there was... What, what um, does that mean? That, in a sense, means that you're trying to achieve your objectives using all manner of different tools, tactics, and techniques which don't bring on a hot war as such. Uh, and, of course, useful capabilities for that sort of way of operating are... Uh, militias, um, what he might describe as private military and security companies, like the Wagner Group, but Same the mercenaries. Ref- mercenaries. We would describe them as that. I think absolutely. And of course, the the advantage of those is that um, you know you can pretend you don't own them. They're deniable, uh, and there's a, a plausible degree of truth in that. I suspect, which is a very helpful position to be in if you're trying to achieve your foreign and security objectives without them necessarily being linked back to your own behaviour. And then you then sort of wind the clock forward to what he did in Syria. Uh, and what we saw in Syria, of course, was that he was testing new weapon systems. And he was also, I think, training his troops to become more accustomed to combat operations because he was conscious that his forces had not been involved particularly in combat operations over the course of the previous 15 years or so. So it
0: was almost a training ground.
1: I think he used it as a battle laboratory, definitely. And we then saw him deploy nuclear-capable Iskander missiles to Kalingrad, Kalingrad being that slither of land that touches the Baltic and divides Lithuania from Poland.
0: Was that quite alarming when you saw that?
1: Well I think it just made us realise that he was upping the ante. Now I don't think at that stage one necessarily had any clear evidence that he was trying to achieve the sorts of things that we see today but there was enough going on I think for us to feel that he was becoming the acute threat.
0: Did people take that warning seriously at the time?
1: Um, I think it, we, we, began a, we began an argument. And the fact of the matter is that that argument was massively reinforced about three months later, when you'll recall that uh, Putin tried to assassinate the Scripple family in Salisbury. So I think that you know, the, the penny was definitely dropping in 2018, broadly across government, that Russia was an acute threat.
0: You did an interview with us about a year ago, in fact, and you you described the problem with with Russia as being like sort of a a boiling frog. It does feel like we've really reached that moment now. Just talk us through how we got there. You know, what were the things that you were seeing in the last couple of years that made you think this wasn't just political sloganing, there were actually things that Russia was doing to make you feel quite alive to the threat?
1: Yes, it's probably just worth unpacking the analogy a bit. The, The idea is that if you throw frog into cold water and you turn the heat up slowly, it'll be too late before it realizes it's being boiled. Mm. Whereas if you throw it obviously into boiling water, it'll leap out immediately. And I think what I've been saying about the broader historic context, if you go back to 2008 and maybe further, but certainly 2008, you wind the clock forward. What they're trying to do there is is what I would describe as fate accompli strategies, where they do something that's below the threshold at which we would want to escalate to war. And therefore, it becomes something that changes the status quo. But it's never quite enough for us genuinely to get angry about it. And so that's we stand
0: th- around and get worried. We can see the threat, but it's not enough for us to go to war.
1: Yeah, it's not enough for us to do something really tough, like you're seeing over the course of the last 10 days.
0: Yeah. And talking about this last fortnight or so, I mean, did you see this coming? Did you think he'd go as far as invading a country like Ukraine, not just the Donbass, but the whole country?
1: I, mean, I think we all hoped that it wouldn't come to that. But I think, you know, we saw him reinforcing his forces around the borders of Ukraine, albeit on Russian soil, not on Belarusian soil, uh, during the course of April last year. And we saw quite assertive behavior in the Black Sea uh, during the same mm. period. Clearly, People were very worried in November as, again, the reinforcements began to happen around the borders of Ukraine. Uh, And indeed, you know, the unusual step of publishing intelligence occurred. But I do not think we realized it would come to quite what it has come to today.
0: You mentioned that we started publishing intelligence and that started coming quite early. You know, before Christmas, we were getting hints from Western intelligence services that Ukraine was in real trouble. In the last month or so, even whilst Ukraine was saying... There won't be an invasion, this is all overblown. Western intelligence agencies with, in, and Western politicians were very vocal in saying that they could see the threat. That felt quite new. You know we, we haven't seen that happen before. Why would that have been done?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think it is new. I think there is a you know an increasing recognition um, for from you know the sort of security professionals these days that modern warfare is very much now about a battle of the narratives. And indeed, what we see playing out in Ukraine at the moment, I mean, if you go back to 2015, David Patrick Arikos wrote a great book called War in 140 Characters, in which he observed that, you know, there are two fights going on. There's the physical fight on the ground with sort of tanks and infantry and artillery and what have you. And then there is the fight in media space going on, particularly in social media space, which is why he said war in 140 characters. And he observed that the one that was probably more important was the war in the media space. Really? And I think that is still the case and of course what we see playing out on the ground at the moment is that um you know the Ukrainians led by President Zelensky have become well, they've been brilliant uh, at the way in which they've marshaled the narrative and used information as a weapon system to get after a range of different audiences. So I think you know using intelligence you might wish to put in the public domain in order to win the battle of the narratives is quite clearly an art form that's necessary to augment your other approaches
0: in terms of the information war you know you mentioned how well president zelensky seems to be presenting himself you know ukrainian morale despite really extraordinary circumstances seems to have been very high their their resistance has been remarkable we were told that you know information warfare was a, a very modern part of war now and we thought the russians would be very good at it they don't seem to have been i mean have, have they just been on the back foot what, what do you think's gone wrong
1: Well, I think so much of this depends and taking a step back on the assumptions that you make about the nature of the operation that you're about to mount. And I think that the assumptions that Mr. Putin made before he invaded Ukraine, were that it would be forces that were received as liberators. And therefore, in terms of the narrative, it was much more about trying to have a go at the Zelensky government, but not necessarily at the people of Ukraine, so that when his forces arrived, there would be sort of ticker tape and bunting to receive them. And actually they didn't need to worry much more about a narrative than it's a narrative that we've come to rescue you from your corrupt and um, disingenuous government. Mm. And I think that of course that turned out to be a totally flawed assumption. And of course one of Mr. Putin's most significant uh, mistakes I suspect is therefore to arouse Ukrainian nationhood. And that nationhood is proving to be very powerful, as we see what's unfolding over the last couple of weeks.
0: So, do you think President Putin genuinely believed they'd be welcomed into Ukraine with, with bunting and, and uh, uh, you know, a welcome parade?
1: It does seem to me that um, that's the explanation for why he described it as a special military operation. Is probably the reason why I guess he probably persuaded China that what he was doing would be uh, not that risky. Um, And that's why I think his forces were arrayed in the way they have been arrayed. Uh, And of course that is a set of assumptions that have led to really quite a dodgy outcome at the tactical level.
0: Talk us through what you've seen of the Russian operation so far. What do you think it is that's made it not do as well as we expected it to at this stage?
1: Well, because I I think the expectation was that they wouldn't have to fight. Or if they did have to fight, it would be on a very small scale. And that's why I think the tactics that the military has adopted as it rolled into Ukraine has been one of expecting to be greeted as liberators. Now, if you do have that as your, over, as, as your assumption, first of all, your troops are probably not psychologically prepared to fight. Um, and secondly, you're probably not organized in terms of your force organization to be able to deal with a fight. Uh, and I think that's what has occurred over the course of the first week of this war. Uh, and that, I think, will have been a, a shock, which will then need to be adjusted. Uh, and, you know, what we're now seeing, I think, is a, is a bit of an adjustment going on.
0: What do you think the flaws have been?
1: Well, I think that the, the key flaw is, a, is a, 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 an underestimation of the fact that Ukrainians would fight. And, of course, what we've seen, and we military always talk about um, um, measuring military Uh, effectiveness through the whole business of um, the hierarchy of fighting power, as we call it, with the conceptual at the top and then the physical and the moral. And if one of those components um, is not being effective then you would usually lose um, and the moral component in this case is remarkably effective in terms of uh, how ukraine sees the thing and how they're fighting but of course the russian position is a lot less reliable because they didn't expect to have to fight and therefore the moral com- component is not really in place and that means that you know when you suddenly are confronted um, either by um, a group of civilians offering you sunflower seeds or suddenly you're um, met by some really very, very tough resistance, where small groups of very determined people are being very well led Mm. with reasonable weapons and are getting after you in a way that you weren't expecting, then it's jolly difficult for you to respond to that. Um, It's a shock. And I think what we've seen is a shock. Now, how long a shock lasts is another matter altogether. But, you know, it, 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 that was their first, I think, an obvious mistake. And, of course, the tactics that flowed from that sense of, um, of, of expectation, over optimistic expectation, hubris, if you like, meant, of course, that they forgot some of the or didn't bother with some of the tactics that we all know when you're up against those sorts of opponents are vital, which is the integration of tanks with infantry, with artillery and with air power. Uh, and that was not the way they fought in the first few days of the war, because they didn't expect to fight. Uh, and the upshot of all of that was that the logistics probably weren't in the right place. Some of the communications was rather suspect. Um, but that doesn't mean that they won't change how they're operating. And I suspect that's exactly what they're going through, or have been going through over the last three or four days, so that they are better able to fight.
0: Mm. Well. Um- We've all been watching this convoy, you know, these tanks just lining up and they seem to be stuck outside Kyiv. What do you make of that as as a military man looking at it? um, What do you think has gone wrong? Is this a deliberate tactic or or is something not functioned?
1: My guess would be that this is not one convoy. This is a whole load of um, their battalion tactical groups who've all backed up into each other. And that's probably happened because the Ukrainians have been very effective at blowing key bridges Mm. and perhaps taking out key vehicles in the group of vehicles that are on that road. And of course, the problem they've got is it's a very mild winter. And that means that uh, moving off-road is very difficult. It becomes very muddy very quickly. Um, So I think you a combination of those factors and then with enemy action as well, um, and probably not with the right engineering equipment in the right place to be able to deal with the bridges that have been blown, that is proper friction, which comes with war.
0: In terms of the Ukrainian side, what have you made of their efforts so far, their operation?
1: Well, I mean, I think they've um, they, they've been extraordinarily resolute in the way they've defended their country. But I think, you know, the big difficulty they've got is that they are up against, you know, a mighty opponent. And that mighty opponent will increasingly bring artillery to bear, probably more air power. And that means that um, there's going to be a sort of ghastly sense of attrition about it. And of course, what's going to be very challenging is when we begin to see civilian casualties that will come in probably significant numbers mm, if, Russia already, been... to, if Russia starts if Russia to get after the cities. Um, and that's the bit that I think is going to be really um, difficult for all of us to live with.
0: What do you think might happen next?
1: Well, I, th- I think that you know, the, the Russian military have to get after the cities because that's where people live. And of course, they have to get after Kyiv because that's where President Zelensky's government is. You know, They have to take that out if they'd have any chance of, I guess, installing the puppet regime that I imagine they want to install. So that means this fight, sadly, is coming to cities, as we're already beginning to see in places like Mariupol. And we're seeing now in the suburbs of Kyiv. And of course, fighting in urban areas is, is very difficult. It favours the defender. You need to have a significant preponderance of attacking troops to prevail, probably six to one.
0: Now, talk us through that. I mean, that, that sounds like an astonishing figure. How, what does that look like on the ground? You, you've you been in urban battlegrounds. Why is it six to one? What What is going on there?
1: Because defenders are able to um, bed themselves into the rubble and into buildings. And you literally have to, as the attacker, winkle the defenders out of every little room, every nook and cranny, every suburb, it's often going to be in three dimensions because there's a metro system in a, t- in a city like Kyiv. Then you've got ground level and then there'll be high rise buildings. Mm. And you're, you're trying to bring your forces to bear at the critical point at the critical time, which requires an extraordinary high level of training. And you need to rehearse and practice it significantly. We've seen this playing out previously in 20 years ago in Grozny um, in, the, in, in the fight for Chechnya. And we've seen it in Aleppo. And, you know, it'll be very testing for Russian troops to see whether or not they've got the relevant level of training to be able to deal with um, a very, very challenging environment.
0: And I mean, it's really interesting hearing that from you, because, you know, this is obviously tactics that we had to use in places like Iraq, where we were going in and there was a local population. And you know up until now, I think we've, we've thought about it much more in terms of the Ukrainians who were in, hidden in bunkers. But for the Russians, I mean, that's not easy. You know, you are surrounded by potential enemies. Is there a danger, though, that rather than risking their soldiers who might not be that skilled, they just, as they did in Aleppo, flatten the city from, from afar?
1: Yes, I suspect there is, there is a danger of that. But I think if you go back in history and you look at big urban fights, battles like we saw, for example, in Stalingrad, what his, history tells you is that human beings, if they're you know, serious defenders and they care about what they're doing, they'll survive that. Really? And they'll still be there to fight. And we saw that repeatedly in, in the Battle of Stalingrad. Whatever one may see, and it'll be horrible, but if people really care, and that is the sense one gets from the way the Ukrainians are resisting at the moment, they really, really care and they're going to fight, then the answer is enough of them will survive to fight. And um, you know, if you're going to try and win this fight, it's going to be ugly.
0: It does sound like they've got, as you said, the moral argument. You know, they've got a real cause to fight on their side. What else do the Ukrainians have in terms of their arsenal? You know, what what can we expect them to rely on in the next few weeks?
1: Well, I think the information battle. And I think the other thing we should expect is it'll be very challenging for public opinion in the West to cope with seeing the sort of potential attrition that could occur. And, you know, um, if you cast your mind back to the Balkans, you know, we, we didn't get involved really until... Public opinion began to see the ghastly genocide that was occurring, and uh, consciences took over. So that will be clearly a feature of this. I think you know it's, it's going to be important that they still try and retain. They need some weaponry to be able to carry on the fight, um, and you know some of the modern weaponry that I think nearly thirty nations have now provided is important to them to keep the fight going. And then I think you know a, a lot of it will depend upon you know, where you fight and, and how you fight. You know, it's going to be about the cities, but if that fight gets lost, then the potential for a much longer term guerrilla campaign with partisans fighting in the way, you know, the Ukrainians did extraordinarily in, um, in World War II is the sort of thing that we would then see play out, I suspect.
0: Coming up, just how close are we to World War Three? That's after a message from a colleague.
1: I'm Matthew Campbell, Foreign Features Editor at The Sunday Times. I've always had a hunger for news, finding out things about parts of the world away from the beaten track. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash storiesofourtimes.
0: To get
1: started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
0: There's been calls from Ukraine for the last few weeks for a no-fly zone. We've very much said that's not a possibility. What are our military options for getting involved?
1: Well, personally, I think they're, they're very limited. One of the things that you know, our leadership are doing very well at the moment is to try and contain what's happening to Ukraine. And if, if you try and enforce a no-fly zone, which means that you may well have to bring your air power into direct conflict with Russian air power, then you will be escalating this conflict. And the odds on you being able to contain it to uh, Ukrainian airspace, I suspect, are, are limited. And if you allow this thing to spread into a regional war, uh, then who knows what could happen? Because we're dealing here with a, a nuclear armed state in Russia, uh, and one that has got You know, a a huge uh, arsenal of weapons and and a massive military forces. It would be um, very dangerous um, to allow this to get outside the strict borders of Ukraine. Um, So I think one has to be very um, very careful uh, in terms of how one manages the potential support that we can offer to Ukraine.
0: What is the most we could do, do you think, without? Without risking that escalation.
1: Well, I think it—it's it, it, what's going on at the moment. It's about providing them quite clearly with moral support. It's about quite clearly helping with the refugees that are leaving the country at the moment. But it's also about giving them military assistance in terms of, you know, weaponry and munitions and so on and so forth, so that they are able themselves to be able to continue the fight themselves.
0: And if it does look like they're losing, if there there is a genocide occurring, at what point do we have to do something about it?
1: That's not. My call, I don't think. I think that's something that our political leadership will have to think very hard about
0: in terms of the Russian plan for war, I mean, how does this play out? can they can they win?
1: no, I, I don't think so. In fact, I think frankly, they've um, um Putin has already lost. I think it's very careful. be careful not to talk about um Russia at this. We should be talking about Putin, and we should be talking about his regime. So the answer is that, Putin has already lost. Um, First and foremost, you know, any government that he might wish to impose in Ukraine will not have any legitimacy anywhere, least of all with the Ukrainian people.
0: So this is if they bring in a puppet regime?
1: Yes, I I just don't... There's no way that that will have legitimacy. That is already obvious. The second reason that um, he's lost is that he cannot occupy Ukraine indefinitely. It will become an entanglement, a quagmire. Um, This is a country you know, of 41 million people, although many have already left, and it's the largest country in Europe. And the reality, of course, if you wanted to occupy that, is you probably need half a million men if you're going to have to fight for it. Uh, and that is not something that he can afford, and it will be hugely expensive in blood and treasure. And of course, you know, what he's also done in terms of the way he's lost is that he's now inspired a sense of Ukrainian nationhood, which will outlive him, and I think will endure, you know, in perpetuity probably. Third, of course, you know he's been the most significant um, unifying factor in terms of NATO, the European Union, and the West over the course of the last few weeks uh, that we've had probably since um, since any of those institutions were founded. You know wow. the fact that you've had you know a poll in Finland suggesting they might people might they might want to join NATO. The fact that Sweden and Switzerland, who are traditionally neutral countries, have been prepared to either give weapons or to get behind the sanctions. You know there's been a real reawakening uh, of the, in the West of what I think the West stands for, and other countries will be looking at this, not least China, I suspect. So that's a a big loss for Putinism. Fourth, of course, he's made himself isolated internationally, um, and you know that includes sport, culture, technology, mm. media. It's the whole enchilada, and that uh, that is something that um, will be very challenging to. Come back from, and of course, it's made him dependent on China. And you yeah. know, does the average Russian want to be dependent upon China? And then I think the you know the the, the question that none of us know the answer to is um, he's obviously created internal discontent. What might that do? Uh, and that's a big question. So mm. in so many ways, he's lost. But of course, the danger of him having lost is how does he then respond to that?
0: You know, you mentioned sanctions there. And over the weekend, we saw President Putin, um, you know, fi- finally emerge from isolation and sort of sat on a, a table full of air hostesses, saying that sanctions are war. How how do you interpret that? What what are the risks? You know, he's clearly very angry at the West for what we've done, for, for for what's happened to the ruble and to the economy. How might he respond to that?
1: Well, again, I think a lot of it depends upon. Your judgment as to how rational he is mm. and there's been a lot of speculation about that I mean personally I think he's rational I just think he's got a revisionist view of history and he's a very angry man at the moment and, and very passionate in in what he believes in um, but I think he's rational now yes it's entirely possible that we could see some asymmetric responses to the responses that um, the West has already um, executed like sanctions um, but Comes back to my point about we've got to do whatever we can to avoid escalation, which could lead to miscalculation. Uh, And that's where we have got to be, I think, thoughtful about how we take it forwards now. And I think we've got to be firm, um, but we've got to avoid giving him any pretext that might make him think that he wants to escalate either into the region or further afield or indeed in other domains like space or cyber Or elsewhere.
0: I mean, so just talk me through that. You sort of said asymmetric responses, you know, how might he respond? What are the actual measures he might be able to take?
1: Well, one of the the hardest things, one of the hardest things I think that, you know, security people have to deal with these days is escalation management. And the reason for that is because of the pervasiveness of information, the preponderance of disinformation, and of course, the many different weapon systems that are now available. And I think the challenge one has got is in managing escalation is to try and make sure that you don't get out escalated um, because it's a, like a multidimensional game of checkers. You know, he could play a particular, he could do something in one way and do something else in another way and, you know, you're, you're forever reacting. So somehow you have to be smart enough to be able to retain the initiative, mm. but without prompting him to do something that is a pretext for him doing something that would be really unpleasant.
0: And what are what what could he do that would be unpleasant? I mean, what what are the potential? I mean, he's got. We've seen
1: him. uh, We've seen him shoot down satellites in space. Um, He did that last year. We know that he's got seabed warfare capabilities.
0: What does that mean?
1: Well, I don't know, but he could he could potentially get after uh, the cables that flow under the Atlantic. Um, That's been talked about a lot. You'll know over the last two or three years. What sort
0: of a difference would that make if? if he did go off these cables? Well, I
1: think, you know, our connectivity uh, between Europe and the United States depends upon these cables. It depends upon space as well, of course. But, um, you know, there are are potentially things that could be done there. And of course- Cut us
0: off completely from America.
1: Whether he could go that far, I don't know. But, Mm. you know, it it has been talked about a lot over the last two or three years. So there are all these sorts of uh, potential opportunities he's got to do things in that way. Um, And that's what we have to guard against.
0: There is also obviously the threat of nuclear weapons. You know, he has raised the alert level. What exactly does that mean in real terms? How worried should we be about that?
1: Um, The straight answer is I don't know. I know there's been a precedent for it because the same thing occurred in 2014 uh, when he invaded Crimea. So I'm not sure it necessarily means anything. Uh, But again, you know, he is a nuclear armed state. So that's something one has to be very conscious of
0: and when it comes to you know the possibility of serious escalation you know when you are talking about nuclear terms i know that when you were chief of the defense staff you you would have had a hotline to russia you would have been able to sort of pick up the phone and get in touch at what point would you pick up the phone you know how bad do things have to get
1: well i think um and my my successors talked you know very convincingly about this i, mean, I think the important thing is to keep relationships going all the time so that you understand each other Mm. because so much of course of what managed this during the Cold War is about mutual understanding Uh, and there are a number of not just diplomatic mechanisms in place but there were also um, observers that looked at the way you exercised and understood what you were doing in terms of capability development and so on and so forth. So I think it's one of those things that is a continuous process of trying to improve your mutual understanding.
0: And Would you do that uh, when when you were chief of the defense staff would you be having conversations with the russians
1: um i had one conversation uh during my tenure with um, with gerasimov um and this um, is
0: the the head of the russian military yes
1: and you know the answer is that it, it's important to talk to all these sorts of people if you can because it's as i say it's all about mutual understanding
0: what was that conversation like
1: um it was um i think you know there were there, were, there was definitely an exchange of um views about politics at the beginning. And, and, and you know, he had a view about the way we were behaving and we had a view about how he was behaving. But um, certainly I found in the conversation thereafter that we were able to perhaps talk as soldiers uh, about what we had done in our careers. And, and that, um, that was helpful. Um, but, you know, we should be in no doubt that the, the politics today are much more complex than the politics were even two years ago.
0: There has been talk that in Russia they've seen nuclear weapons and nuclear escalation almost as something they could do without, sort of seeing it as sort of the absolute end. <laughs> of, you know, it's not like the, the last possible call. It's not sort of the moment where you have mutually assured destruction. It's just something you might do along the way when you're fighting a war. Is that your understanding of of how they treat it? And if, if so, I mean, how how worried should we be about the nuclear question?
1: i uh, a straight answer is I I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I I know that you know throughout the Cold War, that we were always nervous about tactical nuclear weapons. In other words, one that would be used more locally. Um, And who knows at at, at the moment? I mean, I think they have got a a lot of weaponry. They've got a lot of um, good missile systems and artillery systems. Uh, And I don't think at the moment, on the basis that my judgment is that, you know, we're dealing with rational actors, that there's any reason to expect that that level of escalation will occur.
0: How long do you think this might go on for?
1: I think that you know we should expect i'm afraid it for go on uh for a long time probably um because i think it'll be difficult to find the sort of compromise that is going to um, find an off-ramp for mr putin um, but then of course you know there will be questions asked about public opinion in russia and whether or not that bubbles up into a difficult position but equally you know there's something about the endurance of russian forces on the battlefield in ukraine um, because I, you know, if you're fighting high-intensity operations, which they are, you know, there's only so long that you can do that for. Um, and, you know, they, they may well find that they have become exhausted and they have to regroup. And so I think we'll see this thing going in cycles probably um, for a period of time, but I fear it'll last for, I'm afraid, for a while.
0: Now, How close are we to World War Um uh,
1: My judgment is that, that, you know, the thing is contained at the moment, but it, it is important given that um, you know we don't have a huge number of people who lived through uh, the last world war for people to study their history and think really hard about uh, the consequences of potential decisions and to understand that escalation is not going to help anybody uh, in the current circumstances and what is needed is to find an off-ramp is to find some sort of compromise somewhere uh, which is appropriate for the Ukrainian people and of course It has to be a conversation ultimately between Ukraine and Russia that determines the outcome to this.
0: There has been a sense in the last two weeks that already it feels like the world has changed, possibly for good. At the end of this war, whenever it is over, how do you think the world will look in terms of the balance of power and the way we we have alliances and the world
1: works? I think that the last 10 days has brought on a profound change. Um, I think the world will be a completely different world when we come through it. I think it'll be a world that'll be a lot less globalized. I think it'll be a world that may well have different financial systems. It'll be a world where people will, I'm afraid, have to spend more money on defense. Um, I think there is a realization that you'll have to do that, which is going to require compromises elsewhere. Um, And it's going to be a world that's going to require strong leadership because populations are going to have to make sacrifices and um, that's a difficult place to be particularly in western democracies
0: you are retired now is that a bit of a relief watching what's been unfolding
1: um yeah absolutely i mean I, you know there always comes a time when everybody has to move on and my time's come you know i've had uh, you know long innings um and um you know i've been replaced by somebody who's absolutely competent to be able to take over from me so you know I, i'm happy to stand back and let others get on and do this
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, former Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir Nick Carter. The producer today was James Shield, and the executive producer is Kate Ford. If you've got any questions you want us to answer about the war in Ukraine, do send us an email to times at thetimes.co.uk. We really do read all of them. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from the Times, and it brings together the real life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
1: Hi, I'm Jessie Cruikshank. Jessie Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl...